All right, we're good. Morning, everyone. <laughs> Thank you for attending, and I do mean that sincerely. Thanks for coming down to Modex, making the journey. Quick question, audience uh, poll, show of hands. How many folks have been told by people back at home to be careful? <laughs> Multiple times, right? Well, I think this presentation fits the bill because one thing you do want to do if you're partnering with a 3PL or thinking about it is to be very careful. That's why we've assembled a uh, great panel here to help us work through some of that. So let's get started. So I'm Keith Biondo. I'm publisher of Inbound Logistics. I've worked with uh, Inbound since 1981, and I took over as publisher April Fool's Day, 1990. <laughs> so I'm coming up on my 30-year anniversary. Uh, awesome. It is. Congratulations. Thank you. So uh, our mission has been uh, always to be educational, to show examples, best practices, and research and to deliver those messages any way the audience wants it. We started off as a magazine. Now, as you can see from the icons at the bottom of that uh, slide, we deliver content uh, really any, any way that uh, folks want to consume it. The, uh, the mission has been, one, to help companies understand why they ought to be moving towards being demand-driven enterprises. And so along that continuum, you will uh, naturally want to partner with experts to help you manage that somewhat complicated uh, journey. And so that's why we're here. So our panel of experts, uh, Randy from Blue Grace, David from Kenco, and Michael from Alpine uh, Solutions. Uh, they've got a broad range of experience that we'll uh, benefit from. So let's talk about Blue Grace first. Uh, founded in 2009. Uh, Bobby Harris, who I know, is a great guy. He's a founder and president. Uh, the revenue is $368 million, as you can see. Uh, and they've got 500 or so employees. Is that yep. still true? Yep. Okay. Uh, they've got 12 locations, and they've got more than 10,000 customers. Uh, most of those customers are brokerage-related or...? Yeah, yeah uh, primarily brokerage. I mean, you look at our top line, we're split probably half and half between our broker side and Transman. Okay, great. So the services are full service 3PL. They've got a TMS, uh, LTL and truckload. They also manage carriers. Uh, they specialize in supply chain planning, uh, pricing expertise, continuous improvement, uh, analytics, analytics engineering, and dedicated support. And uh, so Randy, rather than me read all of that and talk about it, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I've uh, been in the industry my entire career, uh, graduate of Central Michigan. Um, I've spent my entire career in all sides of the industry. So I've, I've been in working in a warehouse. Uh, I was part of a startup team for Gap Inc. back in Fresno, California. Uh, spent time on the transportation side, have run my own fleet of trucks, uh, started my own brokerage. So seen all sides of the industry over the past 18, now 19 years coming up. Uh, and uh, it gives me a little bit of a unique perspective to be able to see it from all different angles uh, inside this uh, crazy, wonderful industry we're in. Good, thank you. <clears throat> so uh, next up we have Kenco, and Kenco has been a uh, constant winner of our top 10 uh, award. We ask our readers to uh, vote on third-party logistics providers, I think do a great job and Kenco has been a, uh, a top 10 awardee for as long as we've been doing uh, that survey. It's coming up on 20 years. 
Uh, this is our latest edition. Uh, you can see uh, one at our booth or online, and you can see the full results of the survey uh, there. So uh, one of the things that I uh, found interesting, David, is the uh, 15 years, uh, the relationship that you have with your customers. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I think just simply put, I would say uh, just getting in and doing what you promised to do. Uh, the RFP process, which we might talk a little bit about today, is a, is a long process, and um, there are a lot of uh, service-level agreements and commitments made, but we've got mostly Fortune 500 companies. They have you know rigorous procurement processes, and you've got to deliver on uh, what you committed to in the contract, and if you do that, you generally can, can renew time and time again. That's pretty amazing. One of the things that I think is at the fulcrum of that is the culture. Uh, so the values are foremost uh, in their minds at Kenco, honesty, service, and continuous improvement. So uh, I hear that you're a uh, Six Sigma black belt. Uh, can you remind us what exactly that is and how do you get one? Yeah, I got my black belt in uh, 2003, so it's, uh, it's getting, getting a little old. No, it's, uh, it's an improvement methodology. I, I look at it like a toolkit. You guys are probably all familiar with the DMAIC model, define, measure, analyze, improve, control. And uh, it's basically uh, a statistically based approach to uh, working through that model and uh, finding the key drivers to, uh, to drive change and make improvements. So what exactly does Six Sigma mean? <laughs> Six Sigma refers to the standard deviations uh, inside of a standard curve and getting to 99.9999% so accuracy. That's really the, uh, the start of continuous improvement. Yeah. And uh, that continuous improvement is reflected in some of the customers that they have. I'm not going to read those uh, uh, accolades, but they have some really, really good uh, compliments from their customers, and they're well-deserved. That's David. And Michael is uh, uh, owner and uh, chief uh, strategist at Alpine uh, Supply Chain, and he's got a broad range of experience on many sides of the aisle, working with uh, third-party logistics providers, working with shippers, working with finance and technology. Michael, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so uh, first and foremost, congratulations on making it all the way through the floor back here for the start of the, the session this morning. Um, everybody got their steps in, I'm sure, the last couple of days, so uh, <laughs> congratulations to you. Um, so I've been in the industry about 31 years. Uh, I started doing inbound, outbound distribution network analysis, built three or four facilities, and then um, really um, started to do more WMS implementations and transportation management implementations, and then uh, came back to uh, the, the consulting side. So in the last 18 months, I think we've probably uh, worked with and onboarded seven or eight different 3PL sites for our customers. On the flip side, 32% of uh, Alpine's customers are 3PLs, that are trying to get, earn, and uh, keep uh, new customers. So I'm probably a little bit of uh, you know talking about both sides, helping 3PLs and then helping our customers uh, find and, and onboard uh, with new 3PLs. So a little bit of a different perspective. That's great, Michael. Thank you. Uh, that leads us to the first question. How many onboarding experiences have you been through? And can you uh, give an example of the best and perhaps the worst? Yeah, so probably um, in the last 18 months, we've probably brought 20 plus sites up and, and running and live. And uh, it's interesting, we've got a transportation side and then we've got a warehousing side. 
And uh, believe it or not, some of the larger organizations out there claim to be all things to all people. And uh, we had five sites, went live, flawless, everything was great, and then their transportation side let them down. Um, they happened to choose Mercury Gate. Um, they weren't able to get the Z tables, Zellart tables up and running, the integration, and it, it really tarnished the whole relationship because they chose this partner across all five sites to be all things, and they ended up pulling the plug on the transportation and going with a different provider. So um, it's, it's interesting uh, when you look at it, and everybody's gonna have a different priority. And in this particular instance, the whole reason that they went with this market is they wanted to give 98% coverage to their customers next day service. So if your piece of equipment breaks down and you place an order by six central standard time, they wanted to be able to get that product to you the next day. And um, so the warehouse did their job, but the transportation let them down. So there's an example of we did everything right, we had the right metrics of success, we did the right planning, the systems, everything went flawless in the four walls, and then the transportation side went down. David? We do about uh, between 12 and 18 transitions a year. You know, you can do the math, but doing that with Kenco for almost 20 years. So uh, we did 14 last year, nine of those were green fields. So brand new building, brand new workforce, brand new system, you know, often a brand new location, you know, in a, in a supply chain network. So we've done a number of them. I would say the good and the bad are, are two sides of the same coin. Um, and I think it always flows around uh, technology, uh, number one. And then I would say data, uh, number two. So the ones that, um, you know, the requirements building is done really well, and then the integration is uh, designed and tested and put together well. I mean, those are ones you're generally going to have a lot better success in. Uh, at the same time, the data that you've built the, and designed the solution off of has to be accurate. In all ways, uh, not just not just a relatively accurate volume, but relatively accurate in terms of the profile of the business, uh, because you're designing the solution for that profile. When those things are way off, <laughs> and this is a different business than you des design the solution for, you can imagine that it breaks down or doesn't work. You know, we didn't design the solution for uh, a business that was 75% case pick because the data said it was 80% pallet or something. You know, make, I'm, make, I'm being extreme there, but that gives you a feel for or how it could work. Um, but those are probably the make or break items, I think, on, on the good and the bad. Okay. Thanks, David. Randy? Yeah, so my perspective, the trans, the trans side of it, um, you know, we really focus in on customers that are shipping, they spend usually between two and $20 million a year in annual freight spend just domestic North America. So the scope of which that we're, we're really going after and looking at is very, very narrow. Um, so what works well for us, uh, currently we have 10, uh, 10 implementations going on. Last year we did uh, 52. Um, so we're moving at a pretty good clip uh, through that. <clears throat> what works well, I got to agree, when you have good data, it's kind of funny because a lot of them, the LTL side and understanding the density of your items, yeah. the classification of your items, how that ties into the RFP process, how that ties in back upstream to get your rates correct, where you can, you can optimize those shipments coming out of the warehouse. Um, that, is, that all is key. Data is very, very key. The problem we tend to run into is in that segment of customers we're targeting, they don't have good data because they don't know any better or their company has just grown significantly in the past two or three years they just, and they don't really know 
what they don't know yet. Uh, so sometimes that can be tricky for us. So uh, us, data is key. We have a pretty robust process uh, where we get on site, get on the shipping dock, and, and kind of dig in and, and be more of a consultative uh, approach to make sure we truly understand the business so we can deliver value. But at the end of the day, uh, as long as you're aligned in your, in your KPIs and what you want to deliver, uh, and you have a customer that's understanding some of the nuances and help them understand the nuances of, of why the data is important and why things could go sideways if this is not correct, as long as that communication is clear, you, you tend can, can work through those things. But uh, so, very, very important for us as well. So that's very important, what you can teach your uh, customers, that's good. Uh, we got a, uh, a question from one of our readers uh, and it flips that. Uh, what can you learn from your customers to make a successful 3PO relationship? That's a jump ball. Anyone can grab it. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a that's a thought provoker right there. Um, you know, that's it, a good point because it is it is a two-way street, right? It is uh, you know the most overused term in our industry, I think, is partnership, but it, it is true. I, I prefer to say collaboration, and because it really is more of a collaboration event. Um, but what you can learn from them a lot is what is their culture and then how do you fit into their culture. So a lot of the things that we do when we're working with uh, these companies is try to understand their nomenclature, how they communicate internally, how do they look at their financials internally. Some people look at a cost per unit, some are looking at a cost per pound, some are looking at a cost per cookie. Uh, how, and, and then try to speak to them in their terms. That way they understand it. That helps with that translation process. Um, but there's also, you can, you can walk into customers that do have good processes, that do have good SOPs already built, and, and you can learn some things from them there as well that you can take with you and, and work across other customers. Thank you, David. I said it before, most of our clients are, are Fortune 500, and so you know we're a seven, $800 million company, growing rapidly, but we're moving from you know uh, a very agile, entrepreneurial, to a little more structured, um, setting and, and we're not we want to avoid bureaucracy and a lot of what I see in our clients that we learn from them is you know how do you how do you become a, a five billion dollar ten billion dollar player and maintain your agility what you know what are your uh, deci decision paths uh, what are the things they're doing just to stay agile even as they become a large organization how do they uh, what do they do inside their operating systems to make that happen I think that's the stuff that we glean from them as we're maturing as an organization we're 70 years old but from our size and where we're growing to, there's a lot we need to learn so we can maintain effectiveness as we get there. Michael. All right, show of hands. How many in here are actually a 3PL provider? <laughs> All right. How many are looking for a 3PL provider? All right. So I'm going to address the question two ways, right? So a lot of times our customers are coming to us and saying, hey, listen, the e-commerce effect. I only do pallets in, cases out. I need to figure out how to ship beaches or I need to find a 3PL that can ship beaches for me. When you find a customer that's trying to find a 3PL, we work with them to get the data so that way we can set the right SLAs. Hey, it's 60% case pick, 40% each pick. And as soon as the order profile changes and their labor starts going up, now it's 30% case pick and 70% each pick, yeah. why is my rate going up? Well, because your order profile changed. So we, we actually work with our customers to set the right expectation about the data, and then we help them find the right 3PL to address what is important to them, whether it's quality of inventory. We're doing a project for a pharmaceutical company right now, and you know inventory accuracy is very, very important to them. We've got another client where it's, I want to be able to ship 
pick the order and ship it in the same day so I can you know, address my service level with my customers. So that's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, when we are actually working with the 3PLs, nine times out of 10, it's how can I do more with less, right? And, and being able to look at their process. And today, there's probably more of a labor initiative within the four walls of a warehouse than I've ever seen before. It's almost like in the 80s and 90s when we were doing labor engineered standards to drive productivity and fight the unions. Today, those labor standards aren't to drive the, the team, it's to identify which top talent to retain and which ones need to be coached because the cost of onboarding and teaching a new labor resource how to do their job is so cost and time prohibitive now they're using these labor standards to actually help the warehouse plan their labor, but also identify which ones to, to keep and retain. So we help uh, a lot of 3PLs with their process, with their labor, and then um, obviously with their systems, but that's just enough for right now. So we uh, all spoke about technology, uh, yeah. and uh, a lot of folks that uh, we are read by rely on third-party logistics providers to help them integrate technology, in some cases onboard uh, new technology. Uh, should a uh, customer looking uh, to a 3PL be expecting that, or should they rely on their uh, core logistics uh, IT providers? Yeah, so it's interesting. Some 3PLs will be like, hey, you're going to go into a multi-tenant environment. We already got the WMS going. We'll build your five interfaces, and we'll be off and running. And you go, sounds great. Right? What system is it? Oh, you've never heard of it. It's a custom system. And then your IT team goes, well, I don't want to go on an AS400. I'm like, listen, if it receives it, stores it, picks it, ships it, I don't care what the back end is. And if they're taking the accountability to the integration, it's, it's a white glove service. Let's sign up and go. On the flip side, some of the 3PLs will be like, we'll just use your existing system. We'll extend it into our operation and we'll set up a small area in the warehouse. So Every situation is going to provide a different technology stack and a different technology environment. So as you are looking for a 3PL, you might want to figure out what's important to you and your organization before you start looking for a 3PL partner to address your issues. So I, I can't say that there's right way or wrong way. Every situation could present a different uh, environment and you just need to make sure it's the right environment for you. I think the difficulty in some of the scenarios is that the clients sometimes already have licenses to a WMS and you really got to do a thorough process on uh, what the capabilities are of the WMS they have access to. Oftentimes they have SAP as an example as, as their ERP system and they already have licenses for SAP EWM which is a warehouse management system and you have to really think through what it's capable of delivering and what you're trying to do and, and you know is it a good fit or not. The, our, our preference is always to bring the system with us. Um, my dad, we would watch uh, like home repair shows, right? And they have this job and they bring out this obscure tool to do this job and it makes it look really, really easy. And he always said, you know, having the right tool for the job makes all the difference. It's the same situation in supply chain for us. Having the right system with the right functionality, with the right capabilities, um, it, it, it makes all the difference. And so. For us to bring our full value proposition, we feel like we've got to bring our tools in. Uh, but, but sometimes that, you know, sometimes that's not the right fit for the client, and, and we certainly have, you know, a big percentage of our sites where we're on a client system. More than half is on our own system, um, 
but I, I think that's what you always are wrestling with. So uh, following up on that, does the uh, lack of full integration with your systems impede the level of success? 100%, yeah, it, it's, it's detrimental uh, if you don't get fully integrated. I mean, absolutely. Um, I, uh, you're just always doing workarounds and jumping through hoops, and uh, it creates a lot of ripple effects issues when you don't get that full integration. So um, I think it's a, it's a it's, I wouldn't say it's a common mistake, but it happens and it's always painful. So is that a journey? I mean, do you start off uh, saying, okay, we'll work with your systems, and then as time moves on, Intentionally, yeah. Sometimes you can say, all right, your, your timeline, you want to transition so fast that we don't have time to stand up the system and to build in the requirements. And so, yeah, we'll, we'll jump in on your system. But you start the relationship with a timeline already laid out to say, here's our process to get, and, and here's the date we're going to flip over, the weekend we're going to flip over to RWMS, and we're going to do the physical inventory before that date and all that kind of stuff. So certainly from a time perspective, uh, we've done that many times. Yeah, it's interesting to hear your guys' perspectives on that again, because with our, our focus uh, where we're at, we're, we're always bringing our technology with us because a lot of our customers are looking for a TMS, right? And that, that's part of our solution. It's one of many tools in our tool belt, but we're always going to bring it. The real question for us is, do we integrate that TMS? And if so, where? Are we doing it into WMS? Are we doing it the, into the uh, ERP? Are we, and, and, but it all starts with what's their current state. We, we walk into some opportunities and we still have manual bills of lading being made, right? right? So right. the level of sophistication for each shipper is different in where they're at in that journey. And, and we kind of take more of a, the approach of, okay, here's the benefit of integrating. If they don't have their own IT staff, they, you don't want me to be in your ERP system, but I'm going to tell you how you can integrate with my system, and we can help them through that process. Uh, but we have a full IT staff uh, inside our organization. Bobby actually refers to us as a technology company, probably because that's where most of his money goes. Uh, but we, we, do a, we do a really good job with our customers of walking them through that process and making sure they're set up for success. Um, the real question is, at what point and where do you want to do the integration for us? So, um, yeah, it's very, very key. Can you share which TMS you use or use? Well, we actually have our own proprietary uh, TMS. We used to be uh, Mercury Gatehouse, uh, and we migrated away from them about five years ago. Um, so all of our clients from an in enterprise standpoint, which is our trans management product, is using BlueShip, um, which is our proprietary TMS platform. Very common, yes. For us, yeah, we, we have uh, two primary systems, JDA, their full suite that we use, and then we also use High Jump. Um, and then depending on a couple of solutions, there's another solution out there called Veracore um, for e-commerce and fulfillment that we'll, we'll tap into. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about uh, the fit. Uh, I noticed, David, that you are in charge of uh, culture at, at Kenco. That's one of your initiatives. Uh, so there's an argument back and forth at uh, inbound logistics headquarters. What's more important, uh, analyzing the KPIs when you're looking at, at a third-party long-term successful relationship, or culture comes first. Uh, so there's some editors that say, can't have the rest without culture. Uh, others say it's all about bottom line performance. So David? We say both and. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's a cheap answer, but you know, it's not an either or. Uh, it's truly got to be both. Uh, you got to have a fit, uh, and you got to deliver on the promises. I mean, either one of those is going to bring the relationship to an end, 
And I always say the absolute best way to measure that and to test that is to go out and do references. Um, so as many and as deep as you can go, uh, talk to as many of their clients and find out what it's like to do business with them. Let them tell you what our culture's like. Let them tell you what our performance is like. I could put all kinds of slides up here with all kinds of numbers. You need to go out and talk to our clients and let them tell you what they experience. All right, I agree, it's and. So <laughs> in fairness, right, you get the data, you put the RFP together, and you get you know a couple of vendors that come back. Now you're down to two or three, and you do your references, you do your culture check, but at the end of the day, I'm gonna go one more step. I wanna go to a detailed design. Pick one of the three that you trust, that you really wanna work with, that you feel is the best match and fit, and then take two more weeks to go through a detailed design, understand what the real metrics of success are, what the real SLA is, what happens when our order profile changes, and at the end of that two weeks, they're gonna come back with an updated estimate, and you're gonna know what your real costs are, you're gonna put the communication protocol in place, you're gonna have your QBR scheduled, that's what we do. Right? You do the RFP, and then you do the two-week detailed design to set the real expectation about the cost and start to really work on the culture and the onboarding. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think it's got to be a combination of the two. Um, you can have a great culture fit, but if you're not delivering, then why, why, why are we having the, the, the discussion? Um, and I think that's really good advice. on The reference piece of that, um, it, it's kind of funny in our space and what we look at, we probably get reference requests Mm, 30% of the time, um, but a lot of times those companies are moving so fast and they, they see what they want and, they, and they're going to move forward with something. But reference checks are, are, are hugely important um, to make sure that the company can deliver on what they're telling you because you know, it's, it's very, um, especially where we, where we target um, in that market space, there's a lot of players in there, but everyone has kind of a different twist on what they're doing. So really understanding from a fit standpoint but can they actually deliver on what I'm truly looking for? And that, that kind of goes back to the collaboration I was talking about earlier and making sure that the, the third party you select clearly understands what they need to deliver to make you successful. So that, Wait, let me just add one thing. So we talked about the RFP, we talked about the detailed design, and we talked about references. Here's the one question that you need to ask when you're talking to the reference. We know that you know, you're a reference because you're happy with them, but when the shit hit the fan, how did they respond? Did you feel like they were in it with you? Were they in the boat? Did they communicate? Did they give you a resource that said, here's what we're gonna do and give you updates once or twice a day through the process? That's what you wanna check the references because we know every project's gonna have a bump in the road. It's how your partner responds to that bump in the road and that's one of the key questions you got to ask during a reference. Yeah. So, And I would just say, get their top 50 client list and you pick. Don't let them hand you references. Just <laughs> you say, let me see your top 50 clients and then let you pick three or four and then let them you know, set you up. So don't let them control it to your point. They're only going to set you up with people they, they feel like are yeah. going to be kind to them. Okay, so we talked about RFP uh, a couple of times. Uh, there's a little discussion uh, in some circles as to whether or not you need an RFP to select a third-party logistics provider, or you don't need an RFP. So the question is, yeah. the RFP or not RFP, Randy? Oh, I, I spent 
seven years of my career as a buyer, so I'm a little biased on, on this answer. Um, but turning the tables on myself uh, now that I'm on the sales side of it, um, I think it goes back to the answer to that question is what, what are you really trying to accomplish and in, in, in what, what do you have to be able to put an RFP together? So again, I'm going to go back to the, the, the space that we're in and what we're looking at. A lot of times they, they may not have all the information that they have and they're going to put together an RFP that's incomplete. Right. And what it comes down to is just a rating exercise. And, and I'll be honest, we get those RFPs, I'll look at them and I'm, I, I will not participate. And I'll say, this, is not gonna, this isn't going to work for me. Um, I don't know enough about this business to tell you how I can help you. Um, so to RFP or not RFP, I, I, there's benefits to both. But it really, I think it's more of a situational of if you know what you want and you know what your specs are, then by all means, I think there should be some type of RFP. If you're coming in and you're carrier direct today and you're, you have all these manual processes, you're going to have to kind of feel your way through that and, and kind of work with the, the, the parties on more of a consultative basis. So it's the completeness or the quality of what you're seeing? Uh, both. It's both. I mean, because you get, if you get incomplete data, I, I'll be honest, we're working with a company right now that swears up and down. They spend $20 million a year in, in transportation and their data shows four. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know, I, I, can, t I can price the four, I can tell you what I can do with the, the data that I see, um, but let's not negotiate like you're a $20 million shipper. I, I, don't, I can't help you there. Yeah, I mean, to build off of what Randy said, I think RFPs are very useful, um, but they have to be done well. Uh, and that, that's a lot of work to execute an RFP uh, in a really effective, good way. In my opinion, you know, on the front end of the relationship, it's great to enter in that way. You, you had a competitive process. You get some of all these design competitions and solution competitions. You're going to get the best solution for yourself out of that, assuming you do it well. I do think then, assuming that um, they're delivering at a reasonable pace, you need to have some freeze period of time. You know, I, I wouldn't re-RFP in three to five years, you know, assuming you're marching down a, a, an appropriate glide path. Um, but I would RFP, you know, you decide what the window is, but seven to 10 years, absolutely, you need another competitive bid. Um, you, you've got to go test the market again. You've got to understand what's out there. You've got to hold your current vendor accountable. Um, and I would expect that. I, I think what's not healthy is RFPing every two years or every three years. That, that, right. they, it doesn't allow the vendor to invest in long-term solutions. It doesn't allow, uh, it, it just creates a lot, of, a lot of difficulty. Go ahead, Michael. All right, so just so we're clear, we've had some people enter the room. We've got transportation side, <laughs> we've got warehousing side, and then we've got the consulting side. So with regards to RFP, I think it maybe makes sense to make a uh, kind of general statement, right? So public warehousing, 12 months or less, where you just need some additional space, you probably don't need an RFP. There's no capital investment. There's no systems investment. It's just in and out and some storage. Now, if you're going to a short-term contract, which is, you know, one to two to three years, I, I kind of view it as a shopping list. You really need to put the RFP together to make sure you get what you need at the grocery store and don't buy more than you need, okay? And so, I mean, I know that, you know, you guys won't look at RFPs, but actually leveraging a third party or a consultant to help with that selection process adds validity and credibility because now the vendors might go, hey, they've hired a consultant, it's qualified, We've got a river guide at the back of the boat that's going to steer them down this, this river, identify the rocks, tell them when to paddle left, paddle right, get down at the bottom with no carnage, on time and on value. Um, and then the next one 
really, right, when you talk about one to three years, do we really need a detailed design for two weeks? Probably not. But if you're looking for more of a longer term or a green field where there's significant capital investment, whether it's robots, rack, conveyors, WMS's interfaces, now you're looking at a three to five year commitment, absolutely need an RFP to set the standard to benchmark against the three or four competitors, whittle it down to your one or two, get into a detailed design, set the right SLAs, and execute a long-term contract with the clauses that allow you to vary as your order profile changes, your screw growth changes, so you don't have to go and rip up the contract and redo it. Build it thinking with the end in mind, and that's what we do every day versus maybe you only do this once every three or five years. So using a, an outside consultant to help with the process, facilitate the process, identify where to you know, steer left and steer right to get down at the bottom of the, the process, unscathed and uh, no carnage. That's great advice, thank you, Michael. So now we'll double team them. Should you engage an outside consultant or should you not? Most, uh, it depends on the size of your organization, the capabilities you have, but we run into a lot of organizations that either one, they don't do it very often. So they may be a big organization, they just don't run an RFP process like this very often. It's very, very helpful. Or two, they're very small and uh, they, don't have the, they don't have the bandwidth to, to do it. So uh, it's oftentimes very, very useful. I, I think two thirds of ours are run by outside folks. Yeah, our, our side, I will say, yeah, we when we have engaged with consultants, um, they tend to be able to understand a lot more what we're looking for. Um, and we have participated in bids where we're run through consulting companies. Um, so again, I think it, all, it is all situational. You know, what is your talent of the staff you have? And do, are they capable enough to understand what to put out to market, how to do it? If you don't have that, that staff and that talent to do that, I think outsourcing that to a consultant make, would make a lot of sense. So that brings us to the next question. Uh, if you're trying to navigate a successful relationship with a 3PL, which functions, how deep should we get into the functional silos of an organization that's looking to evaluate with a third party logistics provider? So transportation management side, um, order to delivery, anybody that touches that order. Uh, when we go into the, into the building, uh, I mentioned earlier, how, part of our process, we talk to customer service people that are taking the sales orders and putting them into their ERP all the way down to uh, accounts payable. Um, so it's that full order to delivery cycle. Anybody that touches an order in your, in your organization probably ha should have some involvement. Should line of business people be involved in that evaluation? Uh, again, that's kind of situational because it depends on the strategy of the organization. Um, what's that? So um, Keith's trying to trap us. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I would say it is, again, it, that, is, that is a situational uh, uh, scenario. Uh, okay, let's hear, <laughs> let's hear the jokes. <laughs> no, no jokes. It, uh, it, it does depend on the, the uh, scope of what they're RFPing or what the solution is. Um, but, and I hate this, but it generally it's a pretty broad group that needs to be involved, that you want buy-in from. Hopefully, it's clear on who the decision makers are in that process, but very similar, I would point to like an SNOP cycle, um, uh, including so sales and operations planning, anybody touching inventory. For us, it's often folks who also are part of the quality function. We work in you know health and personal care and an FMCG, FDA sites, food grade sites. Right. You're going to want quality people involved. Uh, there's always... Uh, you know, the legal risk folks getting in mm -hmm. on, on all that. So 
it ends up being a pretty big cross-functional team that we end up negotiating, you know, a, a bigger deal with, a big, you know, three to five-year deal worth, you know, 20, 30, 40 million dollars. So it's a broad group. It, and that's okay. That's workable as long as you've got a couple of decision makers in there that can kind of keep things moving. It can stall out if you literally, if everybody's got an equal voice at the table and there's 15 people sitting around the table. All right, I got a couple of key things, so I'm going to qualify it. How many are in here are less than 100 million in annual revenue? Okay. So what's interesting is today there's more and more smaller 3PLs that are true fulfillment. We will take your website, we will take your orders, we will do your processing, we will pick, pack, ship, and we'll do your reverse logistics. It's literally, I came up with this really cool idea, I sold it on the website, and I don't have a warehouse. And so these smaller fulfillment shops are really um, there to be the full service provider. So in a situation like that, you might be dealing with just the CEO or the COO or the owner. Now, if you're over 100 million and you might already have your own warehouse and distribution center and you're looking to augment or offer a different service or go to different areas, or maybe you're just pallets in and pallets out and you want somebody to do your case pick or your reach pick. Now I'm gonna talk about a team-based approach. So there's a system side. How does the order get generated? How do we acknowledge it? EDI, ASN, it gets to the floor. Are we going to transportation optimize before we pick? Yeah. So when we stage it, we do a route stop sequence, or are we going to optimize the warehouse? You go pick, and when the order's done, now we call transportation, and then they go address it. So I'm going to look at that whole system side. That's one team. The other team is the operation side. I want to receive it, store it, pick it, ship it. I want to understand how you're going to do it. I've got lock control. I've got batch. I've got serialization. I've got heavy to light. i got store-ready pallets. I need EDI, ASN. I need markings on the outside of the box. I can't reuse the vendor ship cartons. I have to repackage it. I want value-added services. I want kitting. So the whole physical flow. And then the third one, and this is the most important. Everybody lean in. Let legal not get involved <laughs> on the IT and the operations. Keep legal legal. And it, it, but right. it's on your best behalf yeah. and our best behalf. Because if they're involved in any of it, they start adding stuff, this and that. Do the RFP, do your references, get down to three, get to one, do the detailed design. Once you're done with the detailed design and everybody's comfortable with the SLAs, this and that, now you bring legal in and you isolate it just to a contract perspective. You never want legal to taint the good relationship and the good will that you've built over the last month, month and a half working with this organization. So team-based approach, three teams. Great advice, Michael, thank you. Anybody disagree with that? No, I mean, the legal piece is absolutely correct. I think uh, for us, that usually comes in the tail end and we start getting to the commercial discussion pieces of that. And um, the one thing we always try to coach our customers on as well is don't let legal make business decisions, right? And it, if it's a business decision, I need to talk to the, the, the business person. Let legal worry about risk. David? I agree. We've got a great partner, too, and uh, who does all our contracts. And she's, she's very used to saying, this is a business decision, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm out. So, uh, but I, I totally. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's the best. <laughs> so, uh, David, you mentioned scope before, and uh, in a lot of the writings that we do in guest editorials, uh, there's a term uh, known as scope creep. 
so you get into a relationship with a customer and then things start going sideways and more and more and more. Is that a problem uh, or, or is it an opportunity? It's definitely an opportunity. I, I wouldn't say, uh, the problem is, I'll tie it back to a question from earlier, is when um, maybe it's not scope creep as so much as, uh, again, you built a solution for A, but you actually, the business is B, mm -hmm. and now you've got to figure out how to bridge that gap and how to um, get the most out of the investments you've already made and, and, and try to get all that done. So I think of that scope creep as um, part of the RFP process, which is you want to be disciplined about putting, a, putting the walls around what it is you're RFPing, but you've also got a supply chain roadmap what you need to get done three years from now, four years from now, five years from now. And I think when you're selecting a partner, part of what you want to do is control the scope creep for the RFP, but keep all that in mind so that you don't select a partner that can serve you really well for what you've done now, but then they're, they're just over their skis or they can't deliver on what you right. need to get done. And now right. you're going to end up pulling in three, four, five partners when you should have been able to single source that if you had done a better job. That, that's what comes yeah, to that, mind for me. Yeah, that's what I'm driving at because no one really wants to say no to a customer. Right. But then you can get involved in something that you really can't do. And it, and it brings that to I, I think it's part of the 3PL's responsibility to, to draw that out, to kind of go, um, you know, where are you going? Let's look at all that. And then be go, yes, yes, yes. Or, you know, we're not a good fit for your, your next for steps four and five for here. So let's, you know, you need to keep that in mind. It may cause us to pull out and go, we're just not a good long-term, you know, long-term fit. But as much as, as much visibility as they have, as much planning as they have as a group, being able to line up to all of that is helpful. Okay, thank you. Yeah, and that was a really, really good advice. And I, I agree back to the references too, is when you're asking those references and you say, hey, what, what did they initially scope for you? And then what did you end up actually getting? And how did they react? Because scope creep happens. You always start uncovering things during the implementation process that you didn't expect. Um, so I think it's, it is an opportunity in, in my mind, but it, I would agree completely. It's on the 3PL to know, based on what we know now, either yes, I can help you with this, or this piece we would recommend we do this with somebody else or whatever it may be. Um, and making sure that you have that good relationship with that 3PL that knows when they are getting out over their skis. So uh, there have been several instances where uh, in the sales situation, you get enthusiastic and say, yeah, I can do that. And then you go back to the implementation folks and say, how can we now do this that we just promised? Yeah, that's the old uh, build the plane as we're flying <laughs> approach. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, that does happen. Um, what we do in our process is as we get further along in the sales cycle, we get more of the business leaders involved in the process so that we don't have a salesperson out there committing to things that we can't do. Um, but it's, it's very important that, um, again, as the shipper, if you're looking to use a 3PL, you are very clear on what you're, you're looking for and knowing your business as best as possible. But um, yeah, we, we, we have worked our way through that process, but you know that, that can happen. Um, I, I worked for a very, very large trans management uh, 3PL uh, a few years ago, and um, there was a lot of that that happened there as well. So it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic. David, you want to dial in on that? Oh, go ahead, Michael. I'll take it. <laughs> I would say um, a couple of things. One is we only we focus on about 30% of the market. 
And so we stay really tight on those four verticals, which, okay. which allows us to, just because vertical expertise is really important to clients that, that you know their business, you know their product line, you, you, know, you know their customer base, all that kind of stuff. So, so that's really a set of discipline that you're... Yeah, so that's a discipline of what's going to call out a lot of opportunities that come to us because it doesn't, it doesn't line up. Yeah, yeah. a sweet spot. Yeah. Um, I will say there are times where, you know, you just you, sh you strike a good relationship, they appreciate it, you kind of get in there, realize it's outside the sweet spot, and I think the best thing is that you just be honest about that and say, we're interested in this, uh, it's out there for us strategically, but we're not doing it today, and here's how we think our capabilities apply to that, but don't, you know, smoke and mirrors and being like, oh yeah, that's, we can do that, and then go, how the hell are we going to do this? You yeah. know, that, that's, that's not a good place to be, well, so... No. Um, that's how we approach it. So that's an example of a customer uh, with that good relationship taking yeah. you where you've never been before. Yeah. Collaboration <laughs> and partnership. There you go. Yeah, so um, I think you originally asked about scope creep. And what I think is important is, you know, when you do the RFP, right, it's not just what you're doing today, but you set the parameters for three to five years and it's anticipated growth rates to make sure that the overall agreement can grow with the organization. And as you add services, right, it's, it's probably one of the areas not to, on the transportation side, doesn't apply, but within the four walls, the value-added services and kidding, they, they get excited because that's where their margin is. It's not about pallets in and pallets out, and it's not about picking cases. It's picking, you know, eaches, cartonization, the value-added services and kidding, but that's where they actually, you know, know that they can drive some margin. So the question is, is what is your value-added services and kidding approach? Give them the right data and make sure that you've got a right metric of success. I've seen so many times where the 3PL is like, yeah, we'll do it for a dollar per unit. Well, they've got a team of eight people for eight hours, this and that, and it ends up costing them a buck 75 a unit and they lost money on it. Well, they said a dollar, so we can't go back to them. But if you have the right collaboration and the right communication protocol in place, go, hey, we estimated a dollar, but you asked us for this, or the vendorship cartons were this, and the poly bags, we, we didn't know we had to open those and then put the tickets on, and it cost us $1.75, and we want to make a little bit of margin. So do you have the collaboration and the partnership? And hey, we've never done this before. How about we do a two-week trial, we get the numbers, and then we come up with a fair market price. So I don't know if you guys have talked about cost plus and open yep. book and this and that, right? So there's so many different ways to contract right. with your three PLs today to address this exact issue to make sure you're both in it together. Yep. Great. Uh, so we're coming at the uh, five-minute uh, warning here. Did you want to dial in on that one, David? No? We're good? Okay. So uh, let's assume you've done all the steps correctly and you've got the culture lined up and all the metrics are aligned. Uh, what's a good schedule for uh, measuring KPIs and what, what are some KPI best practices that would enable a relationship to be successful for the long term? For, yeah, for us, it's, I mean, it's daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly. I mean, there's a system. Uh, our business intelligence tool reports that stuff out. That's part of what you line up on even before the relationship starts. What do we need to know? Sometimes it's what do we need to know every hour. <laughs> uh, sometimes it's daily, you know, the weekly reports. I think one of the best practices we have is get that cadence going, get all those automated reports going, so that when you get together for a QBR, um, for us, at all of our best relationships, the KPI decks for the quarterly go out, um, and 
basically it's only a Q&A on the KPI at that point in time. We're not going to spend half of our meeting or an hour and a half going over numbers that everybody's already looked at every single day, week, month, leading up to that time period. I think that's a waste of a lot of time. And that way you can use the QBRs to truly look forward and to plan. Uh, typically we use three of the four QBRs to plan you know, the next 90 days and make sure we're all in alignment on what's out there and, and what's happening. And we use one of the QBRs as more of a long-term you know, multi-year uh, planning session, but that's, that's how we approach it. Thank you, guys. Uh, we've got uh, a few minutes left for audience questions. If there are any audience questions, uh, we have one here. Mike? No? I got it. Okay. Uh, for a three-year uh, network-wide uh, integration, what do you think are fair startup expenses to be absorbed by the customer? Uh, from a 3PL's perspective? Uh, I think it, great. it just depends on the size of the bid. Um, we've got bids that, um, I mean, for us, honestly, you can imagine it's going to go into a financial model, and we're going to look at our internal rate of return on the deal. We're going to look at the net present value of the deal. And um, I would say most common for us is somewhere between 40 to 60% the 3PL would absorb in terms of transition costs. But I've got plenty where I've absorbed 100% because it still made sense, you know, for us financially. Um, and it's also, I mean, there's a lot of intangibles that go into that. There, you're a strategic client. There's a lot of growth opportunities beyond this. We want to get our foot in the door. You know, all those reasons why we'd say let's, let's fund the whole startup. Um, so those are the elements I think that go into it. Existing building, not existing all building, that, yeah. my WMS, your WMS, who's doing the interfaces. Every deal is going to be different. On the transportation side, any? It's, it's all kind of the same thing. It's all modeled out, um, and it depends on, usually we look at three to five year contracts, three to five year returns. Um, some customers, we, we build the implementation integration costs into the fee we're charging them. Other cases, they want it itemized out. So I, it just goes back to when you're working with your, your 3PL, you're in the bid. How do you want to set this up commercially? What do you want to see? You'll find I think most 3PLs be open to structuring it in a way that's beneficial to both. Any other questions? We got one back there. Thank you, Michael. Well, you got sneakers on. He's, He's got sneakers on. Steps in, man. <laughs> um, what would be those two or three key points uh, you'd recommend for a 3PL sales team to focus um, when approaching either a big corporation or a medium, small size shipper or international forwarding company, um, other than offering competitive rates, uh, full-on customer service follow-up, uh, TMS, quoting booking platform, when, when trying to focus more on a more contractual side of, of, of a relation looking forward? So, I think that was, that was a question for uh, transportation management. Um, what, what, are the, what are the key three things you look for besides when you're approaching a client besides just providing better rates and, and back-end services? Did I hear that correctly? Okay. Um, well, for us, it's, it's, it is tied back to continuous improvement, right? So you're looking at a three to five year opportunity with this customer and in developing a roadmap that says, okay, today you're here, where are you going as an organization in the next three to five years? And then how can we help you take you there? And what are those key milestones? And how do we continually improve your network? So that as your network is changing over the next three to five years, your supply chain is still running as optimal as possible. So the supply chain, transportation, everything, it's, it's a living, breathing organism. It always fluxes, it always changes. So your partner has to be in alignment with you to make sure that you are continually evolving as well. 
Um, so those are some of the things that we look at besides just say, yeah, 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 I can get you a better rate from point A to point B. Okay, we have time for one more. Any other questions? Okay, we're good. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Keith. Appreciate it.